Yo, 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 what's good, everybody? What's good, what's good, what's good, what's happening? Welcome back to another episode of the Isaiah Kid Podcast. Welcome back, welcome back. Oh, boy. So, another Wednesday episode coming for you guys. Uh, I, I'm a, Okay, actually, it's not going to be heavy NFL. A little surprising because preseason, we, the Hall of Fame game was last week. Um, preseason is, you know, on its way. But it's not going to be heavy football. And I'm going to have, obviously, we're going to have our football topics that I'm going to get to. But it's not heavy football. It's not all football. I say that. It's not all football today. So for my NBA fans and so forth, you know, you can stick around a little bit. But we have a lot to really get into. We got a lot to dig into. Now. And we have some things I really want to cover. I'm really excited to talk about these things. So without further ado, let's get into it. But. Before we do that, first and foremost, I'm your humble and highly favorite host, Isaiah Kitt of the Isaiah Kitt Podcast. Um, I greatly appreciate you guys tuning in. Could have chose anywhere else to be. You could have listened to any other podcast at this time, but you chose to listen to me and my my foolishness. <laughs> um, but without for like I said, you could have you thank thank you guys. I greatly appreciate you guys. Shouts out to all the first time listeners. The, uh, the the regular listeners, the last time listeners, <laughs> uh, shouts out to everybody that's listening. And I start with this. And for me, Deshaun, I'm, I'm gonna start with Deshaun Watson and the NFL. For me, I am I'm getting a little fatigued about this story, and I I, I kind of have been fatigued about this whole Deshaun Watson story. Because if you guys, if you are a regular listener of this of this podcast, you would know that uh, I've been, we've been really covering this thing for the past two years now. Because we're going on two years of this whole Deshaun Watson saga. And a lot of people have framed it and called it a lot of things. Um, they've called Deshaun Watson uh, a walking distraction, a walking and talking red flag. He's lied and so many cases on his head and the Cleveland Browns look bad. The NFL looks bad. Like everyone involved, every party involved in this whole entire situation as a whole looked bad in some type of aspect. Deshaun Watson, a lot of people before this situation, a lot of people really like Deshaun Watson. A lot of people really love Deshaun Watson before this. Now, it's going to be hard to try to rebuild your character, even let's just say the best case scenario that these things allegedly that happened weren't true. It's just still like having that sexual assault tag to your name. It, it, it leaves a stain. It leaves a stain. And with 24 cases, you, you, you look at the evidence something happened, right? Like something happened. So he's not completely innocent. He's not completely free of, of, of guilt. No, no, no. Something did happen. Something did transpire. And it's a reason why he finds himself right now in the predicament that he's in. So if I'm going to catch you guys up to speed. Deshaun Watson was recently, um, he was recently, Suspended for six games. The judge, Sue Robinson, uh, the NFL appointed a judge, Roger Goodell. We talked about this a couple weeks. We talked about, we talked about this like a month ago where I talked about how Roger Goodell kind of, uh, you know, he he appointed a female judge, a former judge. Uh, she's a female, Sue Robinson, and she came up with, she made this decision. And she ultimately landed on six games. She landed on six games suspending, suspending Deshaun Watson. Now, as I've been telling you guys, my guess was he was going, I thought they was going to give him eight games. I thought that was, for me, in my opinion, I thought that was the appropriate length. I thought they was going to give him eight games. She ended up giving him six, as I've said. When I heard that number, when I when I heard that number and that was announced and it broke news and it spread it all throughout social media and so forth, there was a public outcry because when and I think this was everybody's kind of like I think this is most people's reaction when 
when the ruling came down, it was six games. I think a lot of people was like, uh, that's that's very much a slap on the wrist. And I, I knew I knew the suspension wasn't going to be harsh when the night before, literally, so the news broke on Monday, last Monday. The night before, the NFLPA, it had leaked. The NFLPA has came out and said, hey, we're not going to, we're comfortable with the suspension. Or they, it, they, they, it was basically saying, like, we're comfortable with, suspend, with the suspension length because we're not going to appeal. When, when, when that had leaked, when that news had leaked that the NFLPA was not going to appeal, that gave me the idea of, okay, this suspension, the this suspension may, must not be that long if the NFLPA is not going to appeal. And then the six game suspension came the following morning. So I, obviously, you see why that like NFLPA, they're like, hey, that that's the best case scenario. And like I said, a lot of people felt like it was a slap on the wrist, and you you could imagine that there was a lot there was going to be a lot of public outcry. And a lot of people saying, hey, the NFL got to step up and try to appeal this bad boy because <laughs> six games, that's that like that's literally a slap on the wrist. Um, and there's been other there's been other situations that's that's not that has not been as egregious um, uh, as this case. And some of those players have gotten six games. It's been so like the the line and trying to punish players has always been a struggle for the NFL. But with Roger Goodell and the NFL appealing, they, 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 they want a whole year. Like Roger Goodell and the NFL has made it very apparent and clear that they want, they're aiming for a full year. Now the NFL PA and Deshaun Watson could very well sue and he could very well be available for week one. So this this thing is in terms of the legal process with the NFL, not like the justice system of our federal government, but in terms of the NFL, the NFL they ultimately will have the last decision. They they will have the last say. But as I said, the NFLPA and the NFL can very much sue Deshaun Watson. I mean, the NFLPA and Deshaun Watson, his team, they could sue. And he could be available for week one. But I think at this point, Roger Goodell, he is trying to, in my opinion, rewrite the wrongs in the past of the NFL in terms of his rulings. And he's trying to protect the league's brand. Because as I've said, everybody in this situation right now looks bad. All parties involved, Deshaun Watson, the Cleveland Browns, the NFL, a lot of there's gonna be a, there was a lot of heat on Roger Goodell, and honestly, here's my thing: Roger Goodell. I think in terms of a commissioner, I think he gets a lot of heat, and some of it is warranted. But then there's a there's some there's some criticism and critiques that I think is a bit unwarranted and a little unfair. Um. So and, and it comes from it comes from the media, it comes from the fans. I think the the some of the critiques that come from the media and the fans uh a, a little bit unwarranted. But I also think Roger Goodell somewhat I think at this moment he understands and he hears the public outcry. Like he he understands. I, I don't I don't think he I think I don't think he don't understand. I think he gets it. I think he I, I think he very much get how important, how vital it is. And it's not, and this is my thing. I don't think it's necessarily a Deshaun Watson thing. I think this is Roger Goodell trying to set the record straight and trying to really set the tone. Because the, as I said, this case, this Deshaun Watson case is egregious. I mean, just according to all of the details that's been listed, not saying that he, you know, whatever. But in, according according to all the evidence, all the facts, all of the all the things that we have in front of us in this case, it is something that the NFL have not seen before. So I think this is a real like 
make or break situation for Roger Goodell. And I think he understands that. I think he is. I think Roger Goodell is smart enough to read the room. I think he's smart enough to read the room. Then, like I said, my opinion, I thought I thought eight games would have been appropriate. That's just my opinion. Now, like I said, I think the NFL, I think they're pushing for a year. I think they're pushing for a whole year band on Deshaun Watson. I really do. Um, and, and and like I said, whether this is settled before week one, after week one, ultimately the NFL will have the last say. Now, I do think, as I as I pointed out about a month ago, when Roger Goodell was asked questions about Deshaun Watson and the possible suspension length, he automatically resorted to, hey, we hired a we hired Sue Robinson to make the decision, a female. Okay, so now on to Brooklyn. And as you guys already probably know, Kevin Durant already has requested a trade. He did this about a month ago. He, he you know, he requested a trade about a month ago. Literally right after, soon after Kyrie Irving uh, opted into his last year of his contract with the Brooklyn Nets, KD requested a trade. But the latest news is now that KD, uh, I think it, it seems as if they had a meeting. Ownership and Kevin Durant had a meeting and Kevin Durant basically gave Joe Psy, um owner of the Nets, or I should say governor of the Nets, he uh, he gave him an ultimatum. He said, "Me, it's either me or Steve Nash and Sean Marks. So either the coach, so either me or the coach and the, and the GM. And I, this whole situation has been messy. And it's been a disaster. And I'll say this, Joe Sy, and then Joe Sy, you know, after this report and after this league and after this came out, after this broke news, Joe Sy, Nets owner, he came out and said, hey, our front office and coaching staff have my support. We will make decisions in the best interest of the Brooklyn Nets. And as I've told you guys, even when discussing Kyrie Irving and whether or not he was going to opt into his deal and should he have been and should the next give him a long-term deal, whatever, with this whole Kevin Durant thing. It, it throughout this offseason, the one constant thing that I that keeps resonating with me with the Brooklyn Nets in this whole situation is that they are no longer going to let their stars dictate and control their organization, their franchise. Now that can that can now I'm not saying that's the right approach. I'm not saying that's the wrong approach. But in terms of in terms of if you're if you've been tracking and looking at what the Nets have been putting out into the media, what's been what's been said behind closed doors, it seems as if the Nets ownership the, the, the Nets front office and Josiah himself they're 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 they are they have been trying to get some type of control of their franchise because prior to this offseason the nets have just been prioritizing and trying to appease their stars wants and desires that, that that's literally all they have been doing and like I said, I, I've already talked about this with Ky- concerning Kyrie Irving, but it can, it can, all, we can also lump Kevin Durant in. The Nets, prior to Kyrie and KD signing, the Nets had one of the best cultures in the league. Now they weren't, they weren't a championship contender team. They, they weren't contenders. They they had made the playoffs under Kenny Atkinson. They've been rebuilding for years. They developed some nice young talent. Um, D'Angelo Russell resurrected his career after after his situation with the Lakers. And then, like I said, they had some phenomenal talent such as Jared Allen, Curtis LeVert, Spencer Dinwiddie, and they were a very likable, entertaining, easy to wrap your arms around group. That's what they were as a team and as an organization. They had one of the best coaches in the league. One of the best coaches in the league. 
fun, entertaining, exciting, uh, uh, easy to gravitate towards, easy to wrap your arms around. And then the moment they get Kyrie and KD, there was a shift. There was there was there was certainly a shift where they got Kyrie and KD, and th- you can literally document a timeline of just Kyrie Irving stuff, which I think has kind of led to this whole dysfunction. I think it's I think it plays a I think his I think Kyrie Irving, um, and I dare I say selfishness. Well, and I, I, I think some of some of the some of the things that he like him not being available, whether it's due to him being hurt, or the January sixth insurrection, or any other COVID, like I, I already have you know kind of brilliantly constructed this and already talked about this. But I think Kyrie Irving's lack of availability plays a huge part in the dysfunction between Kevin Durant and the Nets front office. I also think Kevin Durant not too huge of a not too huge of a fan of Steve Nash, but it was also once again Kyrie Irving when they first got to Brooklyn. You know what he said? Kyrie Irving said, "We don't really need a coach. We don't really need a guy in a suit and a tie telling us what to do." That's what Kyrie Irving said. We don't really need a coach. We don't really need a coach. And there was comment after comment after comment like that where Kyrie Irving would make, where a lot of people in the media kind of scratched their head, and they're like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that one. A lot of people scratched their head in the media, and oh, I don't really particularly know about that one. Katie really didn't say much. But but it, it, it was a, it, they, they came together as a package deal. So, you know, with the, net, with the Nets getting Kyrie, they also got KD, so they got to try to appease, and they know that KD and Kyrie, they came together, package deal, buds, and they got to appease their stars. They got to appease KD. They got to deal with Kyrie's shenanigans. I would argue that it, I would argue they would have probably been moved off of Kyrie, but they're trying to appease Kevin Durant. <laughs> so they're, they're trying to keep, they're trying to keep Kevin Durant happy, but it's reached a boiling point where I think, it's not only Kevin Durant's loyalty or or lack thereof with Kyrie Irving, but it's also the front office where have they actually made the moves that Ky- that Kevin Durant wanted? Because it's been it, Kyrie Irving has been very vocal, like we don't need a coach, we don't need this, we need that. Even when Kyrie Irving made the comment about. The guys like Spencer Dinwiddie and Jared Allen, like we like, we don't really need that. We don't really want to play with those guys. <laughs> that was like so. We hear Kyrie Irving, we don't hear Kevin Durant. And this whole situation, Joe Sy, if if this trend continues, this trend that the Brooklyn Nets front office have been on, right where they have been trying to regain some type of control and reins of their organization, my guess is he'll probably choose Steve Nash and Sean Marks. Now, typically, when owners are put in predicaments as such or similar predicaments in terms of, okay, is it you? are you going to choose the talent or are you going to choose management? They owners usually choose the talent, but we uh, I, like honestly. I think this will be said around league circles. Joe Sy is such a new owner; he's new to this NBA thing ownership. So we like. There's really, I don't think people. I don't think there's. I don't think there's. I don't think people have a real pulse. Of whether or not he will choose the talent, which is obviously Kevin Durant, or his management. And granted, I read you guys his tweet. That was what he tweeted about supporting, having you know his staff support, and he's gonna do what's best for the Brooklyn Nets. But wouldn't keeping Kevin Durant be in the best interest for the Brooklyn Nets? 
I don't I don't know. I don't I don't know. I don't know. And it's such a it's such a such a terrible situation because it has been such chaos and this organization has been poorly has been badly mishandled and it showed it showed all last year and we can talk about Sean Marks. Sean Marks hired Steve Nash. Now it was a big it was a big blow up when Steve Nash was first hired because there were other candidates there were better qualified candidates, more qualified candidates for the next job, but Sean Marks chose Steve Nash and we obviously know Sean Marks and Steve Nash have a Phoenix Suns connection. So they they decided to hire Steve Nash. They didn't resign, and okay, so they 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 hired Sean, they hired Steve Nash. You don't extend Kyrie Irving, okay, fair. You don't extend James Harden, fair. But you trade for James Harden, you gave up, you gave up the kitchen sink and everything else for James Harden, just for just to trade him literally a year or so later. And then. What you got back for Harden was Ben Simmons, and then you were surprised. You were surprised that Ben Simmons didn't play, even though you knew, you knew, prior to trading for Ben Simmons, you knew that there was an absolute, there was a huge risk that you were taking on trading for Ben Simmons and him not playing, and him not being available, and it backfired. And I would say th- these moves alone make Sean Marks extendable. Steve Nash, in his two years of coaching, I know it's been a very chaotic situation. Players in and out of the lineup happening to acquire and integrate new pieces and parts both years that he's been the Nets head coach. But I still haven't seen any flashes or upside of Steve Nash. I'm like, oh. He has a chance to be a really good coach in this league. I just haven't seen it yet. I just haven't seen it yet. I haven't. I haven't seen it yet. So in the end, like I said, if Joe Sy, Nets owner slash governor, if 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 they continue on this trend of trying to regain power of their organization and trying to and not trying to appease their stars wouldn't they just move Kevin Durant it, or is that still appeasing him or do you keep Kevin Durant and you appease like like this is my thing Josiah if the Nets continue on this trend you have to ask yourself the question. I don't think the question no longer becomes if Kevin Durant gets traded or does Kevin Durant gets traded. I think if this power trip that the Nets front office is on, and if they continue to try to, if they continue to move in a direction and behave in a direction that they have been behaving in, in terms of trying to get their organization back. Then the question then becomes, when does Kevin Durant get traded? It's not about if or does he. It's about when he gets traded. And you look at Kevin Durant's market, it is very thin. And Kevin Durant knows that. I think because, you know, Brooklyn has a lot of the leverage. And this ultimatum by Durant, it gives him a little bit. It gives him some leverage that he did not have. Because if he doesn't give this ultimatum, they, they, there's no leverage. Like the the Nets, they you the Nets have they they have you under four years. Four, you still got four years on your contract with the Nets. <laughs> they don't have to necessarily move you. They can keep you. So like it's not it, it it's not they they have Brooklyn has all of the leverage. And you think about it like this: Durant's market is thin because it's not because of like his like Durant is great. Durant is still great, and I think when healthy. He can still be the best player in this league if, like, when healthy. So it's not that he can't play, or it's not that his talent, whatever. But it's the mere fact that think about it: championship contenders trading for Durant 
you would have to give up so much to acquire Kevin Durant. By the time you acquire Kevin Durant, you're no longer a contender. And then bad teams with young, reasonable, decent assets, they're not going to trade for Kevin Durant because if they trade for Kevin Durant, they're already bad. He's not going to want to go to a bad team. And then you, on top of that, you trade away your best young assets for Kevin Durant? Yeah, your team is going to get worse. Your team is going to still be bad. And then those mid-level teams, they just probably don't even have enough. They don't, they, they don't even have enough assets to even trade for Kevin Durant, for, even, for Brooklyn to either think about or consider the deal. So with Durant giving this ultimatum, it does, it, it, it does give him a little bit of leverage. And does give him a little bit of leverage, and Joe Sy has some decisions. To, he has some decisions to make because if he chooses to opt, if he opts with Steve Nash, keeping Steve Nash and keeping Sean Marks, and moving off Kevin Durant, then that becomes, like I said, when does the deal happen? Who is best suited to get this deal? Where are you trading him to? Because if you opt, if the Brooklyn Nets opt to keep Steve Nash and Sean Marks, Kevin Durant most likely is probably going to get traded to an Eastern Conference team. So either way you look at this bad boy, it's bad on all aspects. The Brooklyn Nets look bad. They have mishandled the situation as an organization, and they look they look poorly ran. Kevin Durant, once again, that narrative that people have attached to him, it's still there. Kyrie Irving, still kind of Kyrie Irving. And this whole Brooklyn Nets thing, Kyrie Irving, Kevin Durant, was an absolute disaster. That's what you have. I keep you guys updated. I'm a, I'm I'm paying close attention to the story. And I have so I I have been given some, I would say, pretty detailed and confidential information that I think is interesting in terms of how this situation can play out and how this situation has been handled, but that is what we have. If Joe Sy and the Nets continue on this power trip that they have been on throughout the offseason, if you look at their actions, they're trying to regain their franchise. If this continues, I think we may be asking, when does Kevin Durant get traded? Not if or does he. All right, let's shift back to the NFL. So training camp. where The NFL is in training camp right now. And, I, you know, I've been looking at some quarterbacks and certain teams closely. And I talk about this particular team a lot on my podcast and so forth. And some would say I talk about, I tend to talk about them a little bit more negative, negatively than more positively and okay i i guess whatever floats your boat but the new, the new england patriots and i wanted to talk about the patriots a couple weeks ago it's so funny but another topic came across me but i wanted to talk about them a couple weeks ago because they had announced or bill belichick had announced hey you know we're not going to have a official offensive coordinator slash play caller I found that quite odd. But I was like, oh, who? Oh, this is Bill Belichick we're talking about. Six-time Super Bowl champion. He must have an idea and he must know something that we don't, right? <laughs> but then, we're, like I said, we're in training camp. I've been watching certain quarterbacks. I've been paying attention to certain teams. The Patriots have been one of those teams. You want to know what the reports coming out of training camp is in terms of the Patriots offense? It's been ugly. Anemic. Mac Jones and the Patriots offense struggling. That's just some of the reports <laughs> that has been said and, you know, that's been discussed while at Patriots training camp in terms of their offense. They look anemic. They look bad. It's been ugly. Mac Jones looks uncomfortable. Hell, if I was Mac Jones, no play caller, no official offensive coordinator, I look uncomfortable too. 
And I know a lot of people like, well, this is Bill Belichick. You got to have faith. Sure. There is still a side of me. Or there, I still have the thought process, hey, maybe this is all a part of Bill Belichick's plan. Maybe. Just maybe. Maybe this is a part of his plan and it's all going to work out. At the end of the day, the Patriots are still going to be a really good team. That's what I'm telling. That's what a part of me is telling myself. But then there's another side of me. There is a totally different side to me that's telling me the Patriots got to figure this bad boy out. The Patriots have to figure this puppy out. And for the last couple of years, (laughs) I've talked about it. I have gotten I have gotten criticized and critiqued about it, but I'm like, how? How can you how can you deny this? The Patriots, I, I'm I'm starting to believe they have no feel for offense. I don't think Bill Belichick has any feel for offense in 2022. Like you can they have no receivers that can separate and break away and get open. And when I think about Mac Jones, and this is what I said, even the drafting of Mac Jones, I thought was a bit outdated. When I think about the Patriots and when I think about their offense since Tom's since Tom Brady has left, I think about outdated. They're outdated. They're outdated. You look at their offensive numbers, their passing numbers, their receiving numbers. Over the past two years, it's some of the worst numbers in the league. <laughs> some of the worst numbers in the league in the last two years since Tom Brady's departure. And when I think about, like I said, when I think about Mac Jones drafting, and you guys remember what I said about Mac Jones. I thought he had a low ceiling, high floor. I thought he was a high floor guy. And Mac Jones, what he did last year, proved me right. He proved me right. He didn't prove me wrong. He proved me right. What Mac Jones did last year was exactly what I thought he would do. He had Josh McDaniels, one of the best play callers in football. He had a really good defense. He had a reliable running game. And he didn't have to, he didn't have to win. Mike Jones didn't have to win the Patriot games. He didn't have to throw for 300, 400 yards on a weekly basis and air the football out down the field to win them games. It was stick to your strengths, being accurate, being anticipatory, not turning over the football, being efficient. That's all Mac Jones was. And I'm not, and this is not me trying to belittle him. <clears throat> But when people ask me, why do you think Mac Jones has such a low ceiling? It's more, it's some of it is Mac Jones and his capabilities. But also, when you, that's, and that's what I talked about with Kyler Murray. I don't know what these players' ceilings are. Like, we don't know what Mac, like, we don't know how good Mac Jones could be. I damn sure won't bet on him having a high ceiling, though. Because you know what it takes to have a high ceiling? You need help. You need support. Look at all the young quarterbacks in this league. Look at all the young quarterbacks that's around Mac Jones' age, and look at the support they're receiving. Justin Herbert, he has Keenan Island, Mike Williams, great left tackle, Austin Eckler. The Chargers have added talent on defense. They get, they're getting Justin Herbert as much support and talent that he needs. Look at Joe Burrow. He has the best receipt. He has the best crop, the best trio receivers in the league, Joe Burrow. An improved offensive line, Joe Mixon. <clears throat> That's what Joe Burrow's working with. Tua Tungabaloa. I think him and Mac Jones are very similar. But Tua, he has Waddle. He has a, he has a left tackle in Armstead. They went out and got Tyreek Hill. Hell, look at Jalen Hurts. Jalen Hurts, Philly. Decent offensive line. They went out and got him Devontae Smith. They went out and traded for A.J. Brown. 
they even get into they Jalen Hurts and Philly. Philly not even sold if that's their guy for the long term. Philly, the Eagles are not even sold completely 100% if Jalen Hurts is their long-time answer. They don't even know if they're they don't even know if Jalen Hurts is their long-term answer, but you know what? Yeah, they they're getting him, they're getting him the best. They're trying they're trying their best to surround him with top-tier talent. They're trying. Damn it, they're trying. And with the Patriots, all of these young quarterbacks are receiving some type of support and upgrades, whether it's OC, whether it's his head coaching, offensive line, receivers. And the Patriots continuously, they get marginal talent at receiver. I don't understand it. Like, think about it. It's night and day. <laughs> you compare a lot of these young quarterbacks. They're getting support and upgrades at every level. Offensive coordinator, head coaching, receivers, offensive line. What has the Patriots done for Mac Jones so far? Oh, yeah. They they put they assigned Matt Patricia, who's a defensive coordinator, who's a defensive guy. Matt Patricia, who is the he's a defensive guy at offensive coordinator. They overspent for marginal talent at receiver. They constantly continue to have these weird drafts. They just, the Patriots draft so weird. And, and, and it's like it's like Belichick drafts certain players that could possibly bring him value, but they have no, they have no type of value for anybody else in the league at all. So when people ask me, what is Mac Jones ceiling or why do you have Mac Jones ceiling so low? Well, compared to some of these other quarterbacks, he does not have, he doesn't nearly have the support in terms of receiver talent, in terms of upgrading the offensive line. Don't he don't have that. He don't have that. He has, he's playing with marginal talent at receiver. He's playing with guys that can't separate. And then I add on the I add on the part that I look at a guy like Mac Jones. He has less. Okay, think about this. Mac Jones is less talented than Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow. Agreed. I think we can all agree on that. He's less talented than those guys. And then you add on the fact that he has less talent and marginal talent than those guys. So those so so Justin Herbert and Joe Burrow, they're not only more talented. But they, then they also have more talented receivers and playmakers around them. You tell me how Mac Jones is going to raise the ceiling. <laughs> he his 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 quarterback opponents are more talented. They're more talented than Mac Jones, and they're receiving better talent, better playmaking talent. How is Mac Jones going to possibly raise his ceiling? And he already has limitations. Mac Jones, also, he he has limitations in his game. And with a quarterback like that, Mac Jones, and I, this is not me saying Mac Jones can't play. It's more so me. It's it, it it's more so me advocating for Mac Jones because he has limitations. He's not the most mobile guy. Doesn't have the cannon arm of a Joe of of, of a Justin Herbert. He doesn't have the uncanny ability to extend plays in in outside the pocket like a Joe Burrow. He doesn't even have the athletic tools and the athletic makeup of Jalen Hurts. <laughs> so when I think about it, I'm like, how is Mac Jones going to raise the ceiling? And this is why the Patriots have, been, over the last two years, they have been a 500 football team. Because in, in today's game, in today's NFL, in 2022, you must be able to score points. You got to have playmakers. You have to. In order to be successful, in order to be elite, I guarantee you, you name you name all the elite teams in the, in the league today, all the teams that you guys think are elite, they don't even have to be elite. But all the teams you think are elite, I bet you they have talent on, at, at playmaking positions. They have the best talent at the playmaking positions. The Rams the Bills, the Chiefs, 
the Bucks, all of those teams that you name, that you can think of, that you think are pretty good, they don't even have to be elite. The teams that you think are pretty good, the Cardinals, they have talent. Cincinnati, they got talent on the outside. New England, they have marginal. They got guys that can't separate. They got marginal talent. Don't you know New England, get this, <laughs> New England has the most expensive receiving core in the league. The most expensive receiving core. That, but they're probably the least productive. How, that, 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 that's not a recipe for success. That's not a recipe for success. They have the most expensive receiving core, but their receiver their receivers are marginal. Like they're marginal. They're average. They have a bunch of C C guys. They don't have a true number one at receiver. So when I see reports like Mac Jones struggling, the offense is ugly, and Mac Jones is uncomfortable, I'm like, hell, I'd be uncomfortable too. I'd be uncomfortable too. Matt Patricia is my offensive coordinator. I got receivers that can't separate. I myself, I'm not the most athletic kid. Uh, I'm not the most athletic guy. Yeah, I'd be uncomfortable myself too. I'd be uncomfortable too. But think about that. Look at Mac Jones' counterparts. The Tua's. The Joe Burrows. The Justin Herberts. The Jalen Hurt. Look at those guys. Look at those guys. Even hell, even Trey Lance. Trey Lance. He's stepping into the 49ers. He got Kyle Shanahan as his, as his play caller. He got a great left tackle. He has one of the best, it, like one of the best left tackles, probably the best left tackle of this generation. Got Debo Sam. You got George Kittle. Even Trey Lance. Look at what he's working with. Hell, the Jets. The Jets even gave Zach Wilson some more weapons and toys to play with. You look at Mac Jones' counterparts around the league, you look at other young quarterbacks around the league, and you see the support and the help that they are getting. And I'm not saying they're not great. They are great. But Mac Jones, does he even have a chance? Does he even have a chance? Does Mac Jones even have a chance? <laughs> like, think about it. Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert, clearly more talented. Like, clearly more talented than, than, than Mac Jones. Mac Jones has less talent to work with as, as well. So, so not only are they more talented, but then they got more, but then Joe Burrow and Justin Herbert have more talent around them. Oh my goodness. Uh, okay. Uh, maybe Belichick has some, maybe he knows something that we don't. Maybe he knows something that I don't. But I think a lot of people in the NFL world are are uh, they're very much questioning what the hell is going on in New England in terms of their offense. I think a lot of people I think a lot of people are a bit confused on what's going on and what's happening. I'll be back after this quick break. So before I wrap this bad boy up, um, first and foremost, it was announced, breaking news, that Serena Williams, um, all-time great tennis, female tennis player, she's retiring after the U.S. Open. And obviously Serena is, I would say, in my generation, definitely the best female tennis player of my generation, hands down. But I think a lot of people would make the argument that she is widely regarded um, and should be. She's probably the best female tennis player of all time. Uh, I think I, I think a lot of people would make that argument. She's certainly the best of my generation because um, that's who I grew up with. I grew up with Serena Williams. So uh, congratulations to her on a awesome legendary great all-time great career um just thought i would talk about that and announce that um so also 
the 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 coaches the college the college football coaches poll came out earlier this week and I found it interesting. It came out earlier this week. Um and Bama, Ohio State were the top two teams. Bama at number one, Ohio State at two. The coaches typically typically get it right in terms of these polls. Um other notable teams in some in some spots. Uh USC at 15, Miami at 17, uh Texas at 18. Uh, so you know it, it's kind of right, and I read you guys the top five, the top, the or I can I can read you guys the top ten. Top ten is Alabama, Ohio State, Georgia, Clemson, Notre Dame, Michigan, Texas A&M, Utah, Oklahoma, and Baylor. That is the top ten. Um, and I've read you guys some other notable ones, like I said, USC at fifteen, Miami at seventeen, Texas at eighteen, and obviously. I think my obviously the best. I think the best team in college football this year, and I think the team that's going to win a national championship, is going to be Alabama. Um, that with their offensive pieces and Nick Saban, he kind of alluded to it uh, not too long ago, a couple weeks ago, when he said last year was a quote unquote rebuilding year for Alabama. And a lot of people was like, "Yeah, Alabama went thirteen and two. That's a rebuilding year." So it, it, I, I don't know. I think part of me feel like that's kind of like a cover up for the national championship laws, but there is a part of me like I do agree. You look at the you look at this year's roster and last year's roster, it, it, it is a bit it's it's a difference. And all last year, Alabama, they had some they had some defensive struggles, especially in their young secondary. So I, I a part of me tends to agree with that with that statement that last year was very much a rebuilding year or like a not more so rebuilding. But retooling, more so a retooling uh, year for Alabama. But I think I think then I think Alabama and Ohio State are the two are they're the two best teams. I will say this though, concerning USC, because a lot of you guys know that I'm really high on USC, and I think with Lincoln Riley and some of the some of just some of the advantages with now the transfer portal, uh, the NIL, um, you look at what. USC has at the forefront. And I think 15 is about the right spot. Uh I, I think this, I told you guys, this rebuild won't take long. Uh, there's just certain advantages that Lincoln Rally has. There's certain advantages that he has that I think he will fully take advantage of. And let's just start with the quarterback play. Lincoln Rally, year in, year out, has been able to have a Heisman favorite or a Heisman winner or a Heisman candidate at the quarterback position. Caleb Williams is no different. I would argue that Caleb Williams is probably the most talented quarterback that he's had. <laughs> like, I, I I would argue that. Uh, played high school football, played high school football at Gonzaga in D.C. So I'm, I'm really familiar with Caleb Williams and his skill set. He's an elite thrower of the football and an elite runner. Uh, so he, he gives you that dual option, but... Caleb Williams is absolutely phenomenal. So Lincoln Riley, that that's one thing that he's going to have an advantage. He's going to have quarterback play. Also, you look at the conference that they're in currently. The Pac-12, the Pac-12 died five, six years ago, literally. Five, six years ago, the, 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 the Pac-12 died. Um, Lincoln Riley as a coach, think about it. Lincoln Riley has never, in his years at Oklahoma, he never won no less than 11 games. It was 11 wins or more at Oklahoma. Literally. That was that that was that was Lincoln Rally. So when I hear people question Lincoln Rally and how how fast this rebuild, like I'm telling you guys, with the advantages that USC has, there is I think he has he's 55 and 10. That's his overall record. 55 and 10. He has a nine and two season thrown in there and a ten and two season. But his first three years at Oklahoma, he won twelve games. He won twelve games his first three years at Oklahoma, and literally has ten losses in six years in in, in five years. Ten losses in five years. So that that tells you all you need to know in terms of Lincoln Riley as a coach overall. But then, as I've already said, the advantages that USC has as a school, not just Lincoln Riley, but as a school. It's going to be overwhelming. A po- you look at that because think about it. USC is that great 
college football brand out west. They're the biggest college football brand out west. Oregon, sure. Oregon, they, they, you know, Oregon may have something to say about that, but it's definitely USC. When USC has the right coach, which is, you know, John McKay, John Robinson, Pete Curl, I think now Lincoln Riley. When they when they get the right coach, and I always talk about this, when certain programs get the right coach, they hit. They hit automatically. It's going to work automatically. And USC is one of those programs. When they land on the right coach, when they get the right coach, when they get the right recruiter, it pops because USC has certain advantages that even Oregon don't have. So when I'm looking at USC, when people ask me about um, Miami and Mario Cristobal, I think Miami's going to be pretty good this year. I think USC is just going to be a little bit better faster. I think USC is going to be a little bit better faster because of certain, like I said, better quarterback play. He had, Caleb Williams is the elite quarterback, elite, elite quarterback talent. Then you look at the transfer portal, NIL. Recruiting, or Lincoln Riley. Easier conference, Lincoln Riley. Better coach, Lincoln Riley. So when you, so when I, so when I'm looking at this coach with this coaching poll, I think USC they're probably gonna lose about two games because I think US, I think you, I think they're a little, they're a little vulnerable up front on both sides, on both, on both, on both sides of the ball in terms of in the trenches. I think they're they're very much vulnerable, and I think a team like US uh, UCLA who UCLA is very physical and they have a dominant defensive line, I think that could present some problems for USC. Um, I think Notre Dame is a st- I think Notre Dame is a little too much up front for USC. Um, and Utah very well may be up front. They, so I'm predicting USC probably have two losses, maybe two or three, at the most three. But I think, they're, I think they definitely have about two losses. So I think that 15 spot, that's not a bad spot for USC. I'm not mad with that. But I, like I said, year two, year three, this this bad boy is going to be up and running, and USC is going to be a college football power again. I, I I I'm 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 that confident in it. You look at certain advantages that they have that other schools just don't, and then easier conference, not for long, but he's still easier conference. The recruiting, Lincoln Rally, and he's always going to be able to he's always going to be able to have some really really good quarterback play. Um, so that's going to wrap it up. Um, that's going to wrap it up here. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Um, yeah, I hope you guys enjoy. Always remember two choices, one decision. I didn't want to hold you guys no longer. I catch you guys on Saturday. Uh, football season starts preseason starts. So let's get into it, but I let you guys go. Peace deuces. I'm out.